0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I talk with Ashanti Golar, the political director for Emerge America, the only organization dedicated to recruiting and training Democratic women to run for office. We're coming up on one of the most important elections in American history. So over the next year, I'm going to spend a lot of time talking to women, women who've run for office, women who've won, women who've lost, women who've been in leadership for a while. And they've all been kind enough to share the wisdom of their experience with us. And that's why I wanted to start this season of the electorate by talking to Ashanti Golar. I've long admired the work of Ashanti Golar and the work of Emerge America. In 2018 alone, Emerge America's alums won over 400 elections. That's over 400 women elected to office across the country. Ashanti Golar and I talk about everything as it relates to women running for office, including that dreaded question of electability. We open our conversation talking about the state of our very gendered political culture. Ashanti Golar, welcome. I'm so excited to finally talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so
1: excited to be on.
0: So Emerge America, you recruit and you train Democratic women to run for office. How do you train women to win in this climate when we still have a very gendered political culture? Mm -hmm. We definitely do have a
1: very gendered political culture. We're actually in the middle of a very difficult political culture as well, but at the end of the day, what we do is focus on demystifying the process of what it takes to run for office. We're very honest about the process that running for office is hard. If it was super easy, everyone could do it, would do it, but we know that it is difficult and when you are a woman, there are extra burdens. So we demystify it with our 70-hour signature training program. We go over everything from Stop. <laughs> looking at your district, writing a campaign plan, hiring campaign staff, a fundraising, social media, how to prep for a debate. And what makes it really extra special is that the women are in a program with other like-minded women who want to run for office. So they end up leaving with a sisterhood and a kitchen cabinet that is ready to support them when they run. And we hear from so many women who have run for office before and did not win, who come and do our training program is that really was a piece that they were missing is to have that type of support. And it's what makes us very unique when it does come to the winning piece for our women is that we don't go away. We're still there for them. They are able to contact their state affiliate executive director, their state board. We provide support at the national level, and we keep our women updated with all the tools, the resources, the information that they need to win. Something that gets lost all the time is that when women do run for office, they do win at equal rates as men. We just don't have enough women running. So that's why we still see that we are nowhere near parity. We still need more women stepping up to run for office.
0: I guess my question is, and I've always wanted to ask this about campaigns, especially people who train women to run for office. How much of this has to do with speaking of this gendered political culture has to do with the staff that's surrounding women? And I'll tell you why I'm asking that, because I've heard I I interviewed a few women last year when they were running during the midterms. And part of it is having a staff around a woman who understands what it's like to run as a woman. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, they'll make suggestions like, oh, you know, if your hair were this color, mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be better for your campaign or if you were wearing a pantsuit versus a skirt. And it just feels like a lot of these women sometimes, they're unfortunately surrounded by people who are used to working for men.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. So one of the tips that we give our women when they are running is to make sure that you have really good campaign staff. Find those people who are used to working with a candidate like you. But I do want to take a step back because when we are talking about hair and dress, we address that in our training program. And we let our women know, be authentically you. Because if you're not being authentically you, you're going to be uncomfortable and you're not going to come across great to the voters because they're going to see that there's really something off. So if you don't wear heels, don't wear heels to the debate and then you're walking up on stage and you're falling all over the place because that's going to throw you off. If you wear flats, wear your flats. And when we just think about the different demographics across the country, campaigning in Vermont, you're going to be a lot more casual than if you are campaigning in California. So you have to feel comfortable in that skin. But so many women, especially women of color, say that they have consultants who will say, you can't change your hair you're gonna have to dress like this. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley has addressed this publicly about her twist, where she had campaign staff that recommended that she not wear twists because it may not come off as professional. And that just gets into us policing black women's hair. But at the end of the day, who was really the one to define what is professional? And she ended up getting elected. She won her primary and now she is a congresswoman so it is important that you have that staff who is going to work with you and have you be the best you if you are wearing your twists are you going to pin them up if you are wearing pumps are you going to just wear pumps but with a lower heel and this goes back to having the kitchen cabinet that i mentioned earlier is you have to have those people around you who you can talk to and who know you well that will offer you the support and say no, you look great. Go out and crush that debate. Go rock your fundraiser. Be authentically you. So your campaign staff is important. But having those people around you who know you before you became the candidate, that's important as well.
0: Yeah, you know, that's exactly who I was thinking about. I was thinking about Anna Presley. And, you know, her hair is just such a signature of her now. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to have her without that signature look, had she taken the advice from the people around her? So I love that she yeah, didn't and do that. I
1: love her hair. She wears Senegalese twists. I also wear Senegalese twists. So my hashtag for us is Team Senegalese <laughs> twists. But there were women in Congress, too, who wore braids and twists and their natural hair. I'm also thinking now about Stacey Abrams. She had to deal with the same thing. And in a recent interview, she talked about the fact that she was still going to wear her natural. Natural hair. She wasn't going to change it, but she constantly goes to her hairstylist to make sure that her hair looks the best. So that is using what works for you, but making sure that, you know, it's comfortable. It's at its nicest. It's at its finest. And women can get elected looking the way that they do. You don't have to change to fit into this mold. And even when we are talking about wearing the dress, the blazer, the skirt suit, the pumps, that's still what men expect for women politicians to look like. And we are in a day and age where people can look at Ayana with her twist, where they can look at Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez with her red lip, where they can look at Ilhan Omar with her black nail polish and say, I wear those things too. I look like a congresswoman. So we are changing the conversation in this country about what is acceptable and what is professional for women.
0: While Ilhan Omar wears black nail polish. Polish? I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: yes. There's there's a photo of her wearing black nail polish on the house floor. It's fabulous. <laughs>
0: I, mean, I need to ask her what her lipstick shade. I, anyway, that's not important. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do want to ask her about that. So th- so that's good. That's good to know. Um, so you said something in the beginning about the fact that women win at the same rates as men, which I didn't actually know that. And it's, it's, so it's not the problem of their winning necessarily. It's a problem of getting recruiting women to run. And so I wonder what the biggest factor there is, because I heard recently a stat about women running for office at much later stages in their lives, primarily because of, you know, career or familial obligations and things like that. What do you think it is? So
1: as women, we put this unnecessary pressure on ourselves when it comes to want to run for office. We want to make sure that everything is perfect. And then we also think because of the image of women politicians Do I have to have the great husband? Do I have to have the perfect family, the right house, the right car, the right job, the right image? I had that parking ticket in college. I don't think I paid for. Oh, my gosh, is someone going to harass me about that? We just think of all of the negative that comes with wanting to run for office and it starts to outweigh the positive, the reason why we want to run, why we want to be involved in our community. Men don't do that to themselves. They will wake up and say, I've never ran for public office. I've married and divorced a whole bunch of women. i bankrupted companies. I can be president of the United States. Whereas we are thinking of things that may not really matter. Obviously I'm talking about men like Donald Trump So when we put that type of pressure on ourselves, it really does dissuade us from running for office. And with the children part, a lot of women do feel that they have to make sure that their children are grown, that they have the time because they don't want to disrupt their children's lives. But when we look at so many of the women in the congressional freshman class this year, so many of them are mothers. Because you do see them saying that, you know, I have to do this right now. I can't wait. And we see more women running for office because they know that there is too much at stake, that they have to do it now. And we can't wait for other people to be the ones stepping up, hoping that they make the right decisions, that they vote properly on a bill, that they keep their promise. We know that we can do it well. So that's why we see so many women wanting to wait because we put that pressure on ourselves.
0: Yeah. You know, the other thing about that, I was talking to someone about this last year, too, that men also do this when they lose, right? They run for office, they lose and they they may get like 0.5% of the vote. They're like, hey, you know what? I'm going to run again. Whereas women, you know, they go and they analyze like, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? What did I do? You know, I don't think I can run again. I need another 10 years to prepare.
1: I was actually doing an interview last week when someone was asking me about women losing and running again. But we see so many women, particularly our Emerge alums, if they lose a race, that doesn't mean the end of it. Like they are back and they are better and they are stronger than ever because they look at their race and analyze, okay, I was really strong here, but not so strong here. I can do better. Maybe I didn't have the right campaign team. Who can I reach out to now to get on board so that they can come and work for me? And when women do that, it may not be winning the first time, it may not be winning the second time, but women do run again after they lose. I love one of our alums in New Mexico. Her name is Joanne Ferrari, and she ran for the state house three times before she won. But when she did win on that third time, she helped Democrats increase their majority in the state house, which was really important. So these wins They mean so much when a woman does not just let losing that first race define her. And when she comes back and she comes back stronger.
0: Yeah. And, you know, when I think about the primary with the historic number of women who are running in this primary and also the historic number of women who won seats in the house, you know, and also just kind of the culture around the media, although it's not perfect. There's a huge difference between 2016 and now in relation to how we all relate to women running for office. Right. So there's some improvement there, but there, there's a few things that give me pause. And one of them just happened. Kirsten Gillibrand, right? She she just left the race for the primary. And I just feel like the the reason she left the race, and we know the connection with Al Franken, it's still kind of disheartening because she is being punished essentially for a man's actions. And it's things like that that kind of give me pause to, you know, and I'm thinking about like how far have we really come?
1: Mm, mm-hmm. So when I think about Senator Gillibrand and her situation relating to Senator Franken, when women run for office, they do face, how do I want to say this? (laughs) They will be critiqued harsher for their decisions than men. And that can be calling out someone on sexual harassment. It could be failing the bar. It can be making the decision not to have Children, and it is increasingly unfair. I think women have been really great, though, at fighting back against those criticisms. When we look at so many women who ran and won last cycle, they were Me Too candidates. They were calling out the sexual assault and sexual harassment that they had faced. In Colorado, you had women who were serving the state house calling out a man who was a serial harasser and that inspired other women to run. So when we do see women speaking out against these issues, like they know, they absolutely know, oh my gosh, just the media is going to assail me. Everyone who's supporting my opponents is going to assail me. But what they don't think about is how them speaking up is going to encourage other women to speak up how is going to empower them to want to run for office and the more that we do this It makes it harder for people to criticize us and say, well, you're just taking your campaign. This isn't good for you. And it goes back to being authentic. And Senator Gillibrand was authentic. And I love that she was unapologetic about her stance that she took. And she cited her son many times when talking about it, when she was saying, I have to set the example for him about what is right and what is wrong. And how could I look at my son and say that was right? And those are the things that matter. That's one of the things that will make her continue to make her a great senator and elected official and inspiration to women. So while we do face this undue judgment I love just seeing us fighting back and standing our ground.
0: Yeah. So, you know, two things about that. So women are kind of right. Their reservations for wanting to run for office are kind of validated by the way that we treat women who are running for office. You know, I was thinking about the questions around Stacey Abrams when she was running about her past student loan debt. So she probably had some reservations or women who want to run like Stacey Abrams thinking, you know, oh, I've got this past debt or I had, like you said, this past parking ticket or whatever I've done, I'm going to be judged harshly for that. And when they do get into the race, they are. But number two, the second point is, is that more women running helps change that culture. Mm -hmm. So when women push against that narrative and they run anyway, it slowly helps shift the culture so that, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, We won't treat women like that.
1: Absolutely. And speaking about Stacey Abrams, who I could talk about all day, huge (laughs) fan of Leader Abrams is they did try to use her student loan debt, her tax debt against her. But all it did was make her relatable. People are like, oh, she got student loans. I got some of them, too. Oh, she has to take care of her family. I have to take care of my family. The fact that we saw someone who was just like us running for office, running for a statewide office, those things actually attract people. That's what makes us like them because we still live in a society where when we're talking about electability, viability, we're talking about rich, straight, white men. That is what we are talking about. And when we see the Senator Gillibrands, when we see the Stacey Abrams, we are really demunking that myth that those are the only people who are capable of representing us. Because what you're saying is that elected office is only for a certain type of person. And it's not when we want to see a reflective democracy, that means that there has to be people from all walks of life sitting at that table. And that only happens when we step up and run. And I really appreciate Leader Abrams being so honest about her tech stat because I have been in rooms where women have said, yeah, I'm working on paying off debt to get my credit score up because you have to have a certain credit score to run for office. And those are things that they think because we only see people who are very well off from a certain socioeconomic background that are the majority of the people representing us. So we feel that we have to look like them, be like them in order to represent our communities. And that's absolutely untrue.
0: talking about women generally but i want to talk more specifically about women of color and even more specifically about black women running for office. So, we we know that women generally have a harder time say raising money or you know getting support and they deal with questions of course about their electability. But just anecdotally, do you think that the challenges are even greater for women of color and black women when they run for office? These specific challenges around raising money and you know getting party support, do you think that these challenges are heightened for women of color?
1: 100%. There's barriers that you have just running as a woman and there are additional barriers that you have running as a woman of color. And Higher Heights in the Center for American Women in Politics, they did a great report on talking about the barriers that black women in particular face when it comes to running for office. And the biggest one is that People aren't going to see you as quote-unquote viable, electable, those words again, and you have to work harder. You have to work harder to fundraise. You have to work harder to secure endorsements. You have to work harder just to get yourself invited to events. There are going to be people who will literally say to you, well, will this community vote for someone who looks like you? And we just know that's code for will they vote for a woman of color? It's also code for do you think that people who don't look like you will vote for you? And that bothers me so much where people think that people of color will only vote for other people of color because when white candidates run in districts that are majority people of color, no one ever doubts their ability to win. It's only when people of color want to run in a district that is not majority people of color do people have doubts. That's another problem with our political system. It's another problem with gatekeepers, and that leads to why so many of our offices look the way that they do. So for women of color, when they are running, it is totally different. They do have to think about fundraising differently You're probably not going to raise as much money. You have to think about the fact that you're probably gonna have a harder time finding campaign staff. And you're really gonna have to have a different sort of hustle. And that is what makes someone electable. That is what makes someone viable is when they have the hustle in their heart. And when women tell me all the time, oh, well, I just talked to so-and-so, he said that he's not going to support me. I'm like, that's fine. That person isn't supporting you, but there are other people who will support you. There are other people out there who are looking for someone like you and counting on you to run. And when people say, well, this community has never voted for anyone like you. Yeah, they haven't voted for anyone like you until they have voted for someone like you. A woman hasn't been elected to an office until she is the first woman elected to an office. A woman of color isn't the first woman of color elected to an office until she's the first woman of color elected to an office. An LGBTQ woman isn't the first LGBTQ woman elected to an office until she is. There's always going to be those naysayers. There's always going to be those doubters, but women will continue to blaze trails and we cannot let... The negative thoughts, the negative images of women, women of color, prevent us from wanting to run for office.
0: So, this is a point that I don't think is made often enough, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes a woman electable. And what makes a woman electable is getting out and organizing and electing her. That's what makes her electable. You know, yet that question is still often asked of women when they run for office. But I want to talk more specifically. I want to dig a bit deeper and talk about the perception of electability. Speaking in the context of the presidential race, you know, I would imagine that a portion of Biden's popularity, for instance, and I'm, I'm using Biden specifically because he's been most consistently in the lead. Biden's popularity, I think, is partly due to the perception that he's electable. And in fact, the most electable, ironically, in a race that's more diverse than any primary race we've seen in the past. I mean, this is the most historically diverse field of Democratic candidates we've ever had. And that includes, you know, having a historic number of women seeking this nomination. So So again, I don't have data on this because I don't think anyone has parsed the Democratic primary polls. To tease out these numbers. But I would guess that the perception of Biden's electability is in part driven by the fact that, I mean, frankly, he's a he, right? He's not a woman.
1: Absolutely. And Kelly Dittmar just came out with a great piece on CNN. And she has so many gems in there. But the quote that I love the most is she says, women and people of color are used to doing more work to reach the same results as white men. And I was just like, if that isn't facts, if that isn't the truth. And it goes back to what people are comfortable with. And when they look at Senator Biden, a lot of people are comfortable with him. Like they know him, they saw what he did in the Senate, they saw what he did as vice president. And they're like, okay, I know Joe, Joe's the guy. And a lot of people just want to beat Trump. And they feel that he is the best guy to beat Trump. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that People feel that only a white man is the one who is going to be able to beat Trump. But we have to think about the fact that people also said a lot of things about Barack Obama. When Barack Obama ran for office, he was not viable. He was not electable. There was no way that he could win the Democratic Party. There was no way that he could beat John McCain, and he did. So when we think about these things, voters early on, a lot of it is about what is comfortable for them, what is safe for them. What is it that they know? But those things change. And the fact that we do see all these women and women of color getting elected, coming out of these tough primaries, a lot of them unseating incumbents, those are the things that we have to keep in mind that there are things changing in this country.
0: Yeah. You know, I want to talk about something that some data that that that's always in the back of my mind that I don't hear people talking about very much that, you know, electing women isn't just about representation. All the representation is a good reason to elect more women. But it's also about the fact that, you know, based on the data, based on the studies, that women who are in office are just generally more more productive. They raise more money. They Mm -hmm. get more bills passed. Right. And, you know, I just feel like if more people knew about that, it it would just be better. We talk about
1: that all the time at Emerge because you can imagine the first question I get all the time is, why women? Why are y'all focusing on all these women? What are women going to do? I'm like, well, women are going to get stuff done. Sometimes I may say another word, but this is a family-friendly podcast. But that's what we do when we are in elected office. We introduce more bills. We co-sponsor more bills. We reach across the aisles. When women run for office, there is generally one issue that really drives them, but women are not single-issue candidates. When I look at the bills that our Emerge alums introduced, particularly in the state houses, it runs the gamut. It's about veterans, it's about homeless people, it's about the youth environment. We care about everything because we want to make sure that we are using our time wisely and that it is going to benefit the community, not just the people that elected us, but people in the entire state. There was a recent report, I think came out not so recent, probably like last year, where they talked about in cities where you had more women in elected office, the infant mortality rate went down, which really doesn't surprise me. And you do have that aspect of women leading on women's issues, which I disagree with, because when we talk about women's issues, we're talking about equal pay, family leave, those are community issues. Those are family issues. And women are going to try to make sure that everyone is taken care of. So yeah, we are absolutely effective in the work that we get done.
0: So, so you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's not just that women are more prolific in, in passing legislation. It's the type of legislation that they pass. I mean, part of the data that I read and I'll post the, the data in the show notes is that the legislation that women tend to pass focus on more social issues, right? Like inequality, right? In healthcare. And it's not just women's issues, right? So when you elect women, the landscape of our legislation will start to shift and look different. Like It absolutely does.
1: It's something that so many of our alums work on that I really just love seeing them do is when we talk about the school to prison pipeline, we used to say that that started in third grade, but now we know it's actually starting in kindergarten and pre-K and it disproportionately affects Young kids of color. So, they are introducing legislation where you cannot suspend kids for being kids, for being babies. And it's the fact that women look at that, that they see that. And even if we're only going to be in elected office for a few years, we want to make sure that there are going to be long term results. And I just love seeing everything that women in elected office do. It's amazing how they are just really changing the country and making the country better
0: so do you remember so this is something that's been on my mind a lot but do you remember last year when you had all of these hashtags you know the blue wave you know the pink Mm -hmm. wave the blue tsunami (laughs) but (laughs) but it was the pink wave but you know i feel like Now, once we've we've passed the the midterms, the twenty eighteen midterms and we have this, we've reached this goal of having a historic number of women elected to the House, I feel like a lot of that energy behind the, you know, the so-called pink wave has died down. You know, I mean, you're in the center of it with Emerge America. Do you feel that people aren't as focused on electing women? Have we kind of forgotten that?
1: So I never refer to it as a wave because for me, this isn't a wave. This is a movement. This is us getting more women to run and win public office. At Emerge, we've been doing this since 2002. So we have a track record of training women because we know that this has to be a long-term investment and things don't. Don't happen overnight. So for us, this is about movement building and making sure that when a woman decides that she wants to run for office, that she has an organization like Emerge to go to. I also felt that by calling it a wave, it was very dismissive of the women who had been in elected office and were running for higher office because that's the way that it should be. We should see women ascending. So when you're saying it's a wave, you're not even acknowledging the women who have been in this game for a minute, who have been having such a strong impact on their communities, their cities, their districts. So I never was a big fan of the wave word and The work that we see here at Emerge is there's still women who are very interested in running for office. They know that they absolutely want to do it, that they need to do it, and they're continuing to do our training program and they're running. We're also in 2019, and I think a lot of people are seeing this as an off-election year. At Emerge, we don't have off-election years, and I frankly don't think there are such things as off-election years because elections happen every year so we have women running in new jersey we have women running in louisiana we have women running in virginia so This is a constant. So this really isn't a wave. You're going to continue to see more women running for office. You're going to see women who currently are in office running for higher office.
0: You're right. This is a movement. And hopefully it's beyond a movement, right? This is a change. This is a sea change, right, in our culture. Yeah. And
1: I can see why people were excited because we hadn't seen anything like this since 1992 with the year of the woman. And, you know, it was a great media narrative to call it a wave and to say, look, it's happening again. But for those of us who wake up and do this work every day, like we know that you got to keep pounding the pavement to make the change. It doesn't happen in one cycle.
0: Right, and the thing you said about the fact that this being an off election year, I think that's something that's really specific to Democrats because I feel like Republicans know that there aren't any off election years right like they're always constantly trying to get more seats and this is something that democrats are just waking up to or recently waking up
1: to. yeah it is something that we definitely need to be better at is reminding people that no the elections aren't every four years it's not just about the presidency you have to vote for the state and local people because at the end of the day they have the biggest impact on your life, more so than the presidency. But what you really do see too, and I want to highlight our alums in Virginia, is that they never stopped talking to their constituents when they were elected. They were educating them on everything that they were doing. And it made it so much easier when it was time to start campaigning again. I just saw a photo of one of our alums in Virginia, Halayala, who is out knocking doors. And I love her hashtag that she used, which is hollaback 19 And I'm like, that is just so creative and great. And these women, they are just outstanding, everything that they do to let people know that I also don't want you just coming out voting for me every two years. I want you to know that in between, I'm here to represent you as well. And I think that definitely plays a factor into why more people are looking at newer candidates, particularly women candidates, they do feel that their elected officials have failed them and they're no longer going for the person who has the well-respected political family name, who can self-fund or who can raise lots of money and has a big war chest. They are really looking at the people who are running for the right reasons, who want to get elected and make change. You have this new wave of elected officials who are doing great civic engagement work to engage their constituents and voters year-round.
0: So, since you know, a, a big part of the problem in representation is convincing more women to run. What would you say to the woman who's out there listening who is kind of on the fence about running and is not really sure? What What do you say? What do Just you say? Just
1: do her? it just do it. If you have that inkling, if you have that feeling, if you want to get up and serve your community and make it better, just do it. And know that there are organizations like Emerge that are out there to support you. Other great organizations such as Higher Heights, Emily's List, Vote Run Lead, She Should Run. There are so many people who want you to run and who want for you to be successful. So go ahead and just do it.
0: Ashanti Golar, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and thank you for joining me today. It's been a really good conversation. Thank you. I've had
1: fun. I've enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate you having me on.
0: The Electorate is produced by me, Jen Taylor Skinner. In fact, everything about The Electorate is independently produced and managed, from the recordings to the audio production, the graphics and social media. I do it all. And I'm not bragging. This is a labor of love for me, truly. But it is hard to compete with the large, corporate-produced podcast networks. And that's where you come in. If you enjoy The Electorate and you want to support my work and help The Electorate grow, please consider supporting The Electorate on Patreon. Go to patreon.com electorate. That's patreon.com electorate. Just $2 a month. That's all it takes to help The Electorate grow. Every little bit helps. So thank you again for listening and thank you so much for your support. Also stay tuned because I'll be back next week with an all new episode.